We're looking at Genesis chapter 15. Let's read together. This is God's word to us. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So should your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the sun had gone down. And it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I have the headset. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. I think it is a moving passage, so relevant to our spiritual life. We ask that you would take your holy word and by your spirit you would speak uh, through an imperfect teacher. So, Lord, you know that my sins are many. I pray that you would forgive my sins and you take your perfect word and speak it and apply it to the lives of the people here, uh, that they would know your grace, and that we would know and believe that you are a God that we can trust, that we can give ourselves to, and that we can raise our doubts to. And so, would you be our teacher? We invite you into this time. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I have friends. When I was uh, in school in St. Louis named uh, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy was one of the most likable guys in the seminary. He was uh, very bright, probably in his late 20s, um, really excelled in school. And uh, Jeremy had 
probably was about 13 or 14, he had fallen from a, uh, I think it was an overpass, about uh, maybe on the edge of an overpass, about 15 feet on the concrete, and uh, he broke his back and was paralyzed from uh, chest down or waist down. And, um, and Jeremy um, was someone who, for his whole life, had loved the Lord. Um, he'd gone to church, he'd been involved in church, he'd had uh, many Christian friends. And uh, now he was uh, going to seminary, and in the course of, of going to seminary, actually this is not uncommon, he came to seminary, he was studying the Bible really intensely, and all of a sudden his faith became completely numb. And he began to not care really about God. I mean, he'd been a Christian his whole life, he believed in God his whole life, and he was really on the verge of just not becoming a Christian. He's surrounded by Christians, surrounded by young people who want to go into ministry, want to be pastors, studying the Word together, and he was about to lose his faith. And, um, and of course that time he ended up going to one of the camp, uh, Christian counselors on campus. And through the course of those discussions, he um, had found that um, ever since this accident had happened, he had really you know, been telling himself and telling others that he really believed God was sovereign in his life. And, you know, had God knew that he was going to have this fall and that, and that uh, even though it was a really hard thing, God was good, would be working it for his good. And which is a very brave thing to say for, as a teenager, to say... This must be God's sovereignty. God must know uh, what he's doing, and I have to trust him in that. But um, through the course of his discussions, he was really finding out that really underneath that, there was a deep bitterness about what had happened. I mean, this is a tragic, deeply painful uh, experience that had radically changed his life. And now he's in his late 20s, and, uh, and it, it, this accident was really impacting his life. And so underneath that, uh, you know, kind of facade of, of God is sovereign, God knows what he's doing, there was a bitterness of what God has done. So what this counselor said is, you need to go tell this bitterness to the Lord. It is eating your soul. And so uh, Jeremy told me that, that, that I met him after this had happened, and he said that, so one day he went out into the woods in his wheelchair, wheeling his wheelchair out of the woods, and spent probably an hour in the woods uh, yelling at God, I, I think he, you know, was falling out of his wheelchair on the ground, weeping, screaming at God. I mean, things I couldn't repeat here in church. How dare you? Where were you? How dare you let me fall from that bridge? And that's a big risk, right? To say something like that to God because you don't know what's going to come back, and what you don't know if you're going to get an answer. And after about an hour of weeping, and he doesn't really know, he's just being honest, telling God his difficulties with God's faithfulness, his questions about God's faithfulness, his complaints with God. Um, lying there, God began to give him pictures of all the people that God had put in his life. Dear friends that weren't just friends that were kind of, you know, a, a charity case or something like that, but real friends who loved him, who spent time with him, that God had let him get close to and encouraged him. And what he got, you know, he didn't get an answer. He didn't get an answer of why God let him do that. But what he did see was God saying to him, I've, ne I've never left you through all this. I've been with you. Not just some kind of spiritual sense, not just some kind of God is sovereign and believe that sense. I have put flesh and blood love around you, touching you, talking to you, showing kindness to you. And he wept and saw that God was really there. And he would never would have known that. He never would have seen God's provision. And um, 
what he was doing was he was complaining to God. And God actually, one of the things that one of the things that he learned was that God actually wants us to bring our honest complaints, our anger, our frustration, our disappointment, and to tell them to God, to complain to God, to question God. He wants to do that and to meet us in the midst of our complaints. And I, uh, you know, um, as my friend, you know, didn't get an answer, um, he did find out that God was still somewhere that he could trust and that he could continue to walk with. And uh, I'll tell you what's fascinating about this passage we're looking at is that the New Testament tells us that this, in a couple of key books, the Apostle Paul tells us this chapter in Abraham's life is the absolute kind of paradigm. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what really believing in God, having trust in God, having a relationship with God looks like is in this chapter. It says, uh, you know, Paul quotes uh, uh, verse 6 in a couple of places that Abraham uh, believed God and, uh, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And yet what's fascinating is that this verse begins by saying in verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. What, Abraham, what God said to Abraham, I'm going to be your shield, I'm going to protect you, your reward is going to be great. And what Abraham is saying to God is, okay, great, wait a minute, you have promised me a son. And, and you know, in this culture, uh, your son, uh, who is getting your inheritance, meant everything about your life. That was a deeply, a deep sense of identity, and does your life have meaning, does it have purpose? And here's this guy who's supposed to be a patriarch, he's left, he's gone to the promised land, he's supposed to have uh, God has told him three times, I'm going to make many descendants of you, and he has no son. And it's been ten years since God made that promise. And God is, uh, and what Abraham is doing is he's questioning God's faithfulness. And the picture that Genesis gives us of Abraham as a, as a man of faith is a man who believes God, but who is asking God, where are you? This is the picture of faith, is asking God, where are you? And one of the things that I, you know, I want to say this morning is that if, you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, or if you walk with the Lord, and you have never come to a place where you've had serious doubts about God, where you've had complaints, um, where you've never voiced to God and said, you know, I, don't, I don't want to sound, be too harsh on you, but if that has never happened, then it is likely that your faith is very shallow. Because what you are, what we are, is we are finite, weak, fallen humans. And we're interacting with an almighty, all-holy creator of the universe. And if there are, if we have not come across things that are inexplicable, we don't understand about them, that are strange, that, uh, that raise major questions for us, then what that probably means is that we're either not bringing our real selves to God, or we're not giving them to the real God. It should just... Uh, be an assumption that there are going to be major questions that we're going to have with God as we walk with Him. And, um, and so what I want to look at in this crucial passage on what it means to trust God to have faith is we find out that healthy faith will always coexist with a healthy kind of doubt. 
there is a housing contract. And, um, and so what we're going to do is we're just going to answer two questions. What is a healthy doubt? What does it look like um, to dealt to doubt God, to question God, to complain God in a healthy way? There are unhealthy ways to doubt to doubt God. What is a healthy way? And second of all, how do we deal with those doubts safely? Okay, so those are the two questions we're looking at. And the first is um, what is healthy doubt? Now to answer that, I want to say um, first what healthy doubt is not. And I think it's um, helpful to understand that our relationship to God in many ways mirrors our relationship uh, with people. You know, when we have doubts and complaints against God, it's, it's very much like having conflict with God. You know, we have, uh, and generally speaking, when we have conflict with people, we have a tendency to, to deal with conflict in one of two different ways. Uh, either fight or flight. Right? If, if we're a fight person, when conflict shows up, then we give people a piece of our mind. Um, we're, uh, uh, we're aggressive, we're defensive, uh, we tear people down. That's how we deal with conflict, where we attack. Or, when conflict arises in our relationships, we lean the other way. We retreat, we isolate ourselves, um, we, we don't want to talk to anyone, we pretend that uh, we're just half-aggressive, which uh, is in response to flight. And, um, actually, and, and, and generally speaking, we're kind of usually a combination of both of those, right? We either uh, are, begin with flight and conflict, uh, we don't want to deal with it, we isolate ourselves, and then it builds up, and then it blows up into a fight, and then we, uh, and we attack people. So we're just oscillating between fight and flight, and um, I think that fight and flight really represents the two different kinds of ways that we also doubt God that aren't healthy. And um, first, fighting God, what does it look like, what does it mean to fight God? When we come into conflict, if God has done something, we think he's letting us down, He's not going to work questioning his faithfulness. That's what Abraham's doing. That's what my friend Cameron is doing. He's questioning God's faithfulness and promise, questioning his goodness. We turn into fight mode. And what fight mode looks like is generally us reversing the roles with God. Where instead of saying that God is the judge and we stand before and we give an account to God, we now say that we're the judges and that God needs to stand before us and give an account uh, for how the decisions he's making. And that we're, we're the judges who kind of stand over him, right? You know, uh, recently there's been a number of, uh, in the last 10 years or so, books on uh, the new atheism. Um, or actually, a number of these atheists refer to themselves as anti theists. They say, you know, it's not just that we don't believe in God, we actually believe that believing in God is evil. The churches are evil, and uh, religion is evil. And uh, Christopher Hitchens, one of these, he puts it this way I'm not even an atheist. So much as I am an anti-theist, I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious beliefs is positively harmful. And uh, what this is, this is not a humble question of God making a complaint. Uh, within the context of faith, approaching God and saying, this, this is unsettling to me. I don't get this. I don't understand this about you. What are you doing? Where are you? It's not that, that humbling. It's, uh, it's, putting, uh, it's putting ourselves in a place of an attack towards God. And uh, Hitchens says in another place, our belief is not a belief. Our principles are not a faith. We do not rely solely upon science and reason because uh, these are necessary rather than sufficient factors 
but we distrust anything that contradicts science or outrages reason. So what you can see that uh, Hitchens is doing is he's replacing God, the judge, and putting a new judge in place and saying, you know, science or scientists or our reason, my ability to reason, are really the things that everyone needs to come and stand before these, and those judges will decide uh, who's right, who's wrong. And um, and so this is not a humble reliance. It is, puts, it is putting faith in something else besides God. So this isn't a doubt. You know, this kind of fighting uh, against God is not really doubt. It's actually putting your faith in something else. It's more idolatry than it is doubt. And uh, healthy doubt will never do that. Healthy doubt won't say that there's some other God that I'm trusting in. Healthy doubt is the one God that I'm standing for is the one true God. Now, let me, you know, I need to say a little by the way here. Um, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. Um, but I, I'm not saying all that Christianity is opposed to science or the power of science. For any reason, you know, actually one of the biggest historical questions in the history of civilization that historians wrestle with is why did science emerge in Western Europe, you know, in the, in the 18th century when it did? Why did, it, why did that happen? Why didn't it happen in other uh, civilizations? Uh, you know, historians seem to think, why didn't China? China should have come up with uh, science way before Western Europe did. Why did, why did China? Why did uh, the, the, uh, the Greeks? The Greeks had all kinds of geometry. They had all kinds of logic and philosophical thinking. Why did they come up with science? They were on. The, they seemed to be on the brink of it for so long. And the answer is, it's actually because of their religious beliefs. Um, in China, they they didn't believe that there could be laws of nature because they didn't believe in a lawgiver. They didn't believe they didn't believe in a god, a rational god who was putting. Uh, Laws of nature into creation. So they never thought to even think they were laws of nature. They thought that the world was, it, it, most religions think that the world is chaotic and that God is unknowable when it's a mystery. And uh, the same, uh, this is the same with the Greeks, even Islam. Islam had Greek thinking all through the Middle Ages, while Europe didn't have any of, uh, of the Greek learning throughout the Middle Ages. And Islam made no progress in science. Christians were the ones who invented science because they believed that the, that the earth was created by a God who was rational and who could be known. And that if you apply the reason to it, you could learn more about God. So all the early scientists, the people who invented science, Newton, uh, uh, Kepler, Galileo, they're all devout Christians. And many of them were also theologians who wrote about God. So Christianity is not opposed to science, but Christianity says that science is not God. And there is a kind of doubting, there's a kind of skepticism where we put some, something else in God's place besides Him, who we stand for. And uh, that's a, a kind of fighting and a challenging against God that's idolatry. Okay? Now, the, there's another kind of way of doubting that's unhealthy. We all try to spend a little time on this, spend a little time on this, but um, there's another kind of doubting which is flight. You know, we either fight or we fight. We either attack God or we retreat. And I think that this is actually <coughs> much more common among Christians um, much, uh, and much more dangerous as well. Um, flight looks like never saying the troubles that we have with God. Never acknowledging the troubles that we have with the Bible. And never raising them. Never acknowledging that, that they're there. And we basically we go through the motions Christian life, go through the motions of the church, 
and uh, we we're putting on this show of, of, of uh, being a Christian, of loving God, and yet underneath there are all kinds of doubts that are, that are stirring up. And what what eventually happens is a numbness happens in us, a kind of indifference to God. I'll tell you that um, the scary thing is that in any relationship, indifference is always far worse uh, than anger. Now, if you're in a, in a relationship and you're becoming indifferent towards someone, they can't. Uh, that's actually a far more perfected kind of hatred than uh, than anger. You know, you you don't you blow up at people, you get angry at people, you yell at people because you care about them. Because they're in your life and they can have an effect on you and they're near to you. And so that's why they make you angry. They have an emotional impact on you. But if you're indifferent to someone, then what that means is you've completely shut them out of your life and you've isolated them from you. And that's the danger that can happen is that when we don't acknowledge the questions that we're really having with God, the doubts we're having, and bring them to him and say them to him, and what will stir in us is a kind of numbness and indifference where we will uh, ultimately isolate ourselves from God. And uh, as Bruce Waltke, he's a commentator, a commentator on Genesis, wrote, it takes spiritual energy of faith to complain in contrast to despairing of silence. It takes uh, spiritual energy of faith to complain in contrast to despairing of silence. And so the thing that we have to be, we have to guard ourselves against is some of us will say, you know, that's me. I've been, I've been holding on to all kinds of doubts and things that are going on inside of me, and then we swing the other way. And that happens all the time with Christians. They have uh, doubts that are sitting inside of them for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden they blow up the other way. They've been doing flight, and then they blow up in the fight, and then they're in the attack mode, and it all starts pulling out. We don't need to do those. What we see in this passage is that it, what Abraham is doing in this passage is he's letting his doubts be something that moves him towards God. There's, he's letting his doubts be something that moves him closer to God. And you can even see that, uh, um, that in this passage, Abraham questions God twice, and both times he begins with the words, O Lord God, which means sovereign Lord or Master. So he's coming into his complaints, his questions, within the context of faith, saying, You're God. And it's because you're sovereign, it's because you're good that I know that I can ask these questions and that I can raise these complaints against you. You can see uh, uh, verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer Damascus. And then verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's talking about the promise there. How shall I know that I shall possess the promise there? It's because Abraham uh, knows that God is master and that he's good that Abraham is willing to um, express questions he has. So what healthy doubt means is being willing to verbalize and to say and to acknowledge the things that are unsettling to us about our faith. About, it could be something about the Bible. It could be an intellectual problem that we have. It could be a personal problem about our life, the way that God's living our life and how things haven't gone how we think they should. How can God be good? How can God love me and have these things go this way? And we can't just deny that that, that unsettling is there. And our maturity in faith is when we use that unsettling to be something that draws us near to God. I'll tell you, and you know what? That's, I promise you that will always, look, if you do that, it will always involve a certain amount of waiting in your life. You know, Abraham raises uh, these questions 
with God about a son. You promised me a son. It's been 10 years. I'm 85 years old. My wife is barren. I've already been waiting 10 years. You know, what's happening? And God answers his, his question. But you know what? Abraham has to wait another 15 years for that son to come. So there is a place. There is a time for waiting. But it's not denying that we're unsettled. It's using the unsettling to move us close to God. And I'll tell you, we need to be a church that acknowledges that process. That there, this is a place to raise us. It's a place to raise questions. And that's, uh, that, that's what our growth is going to look like. And we need to be prepared that when someone says something, you say, oh, you know, I'm not sh- that doesn't sit right with me. Does that shock you and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you just said that when the church wall, you know, and you finally feel it. You know, or are we going to understand that? And you know what, you know the ways we're going to understand that? Because we've had doubts ourselves. Our things are unsettling for us, and we say, I understand that. I, I wrestle with that, too. And I... Um, you know, Jude 22, Jude verse 22 says, Have mercy on those who doubt. The Bible gives us room for people to move, use their doubts to move closer to God and to grow in their faith. Uh, David Dixon, who, he's a Scottish pastor in the, in the 19th century, we're reading his book on elders for the uh, elder training, uh, says, says this about especially young men who, who are struggling with doubts. It says, in the minds of sincere and earnest young men, there are often difficulties about doctrinal truths. If we see in them a humble and teachable spirit, let us beware of teaching or denouncing them as heretics, which is very likely to make them such, and may scare them away from orthodoxy forever. The church has been often a loser by conduct like this. Great statement. The church has lost all kinds of people because it didn't give people room to wrestle through their doubts and to use them as a way to move towards God. Every doubt is not a skeptical doubt. The way he's saying every doubt is not necessarily an attack on God. It is often uh, it is often an honest intellectual difficulty. It would be well if some men had had more difficulties. They would be more firmly established than they seem to be, and not be so easily moved away after every will-of-the-wisp that appears in the religious horizon. So healthy doubt is simply acknowledging that we are all, because we're finite, we're fallen, we're weak, and God is the infinite creator of the world, we are going to have questions. There are things about him that had better be strange and inexplicable to you, and you should have those. That should happen for every Christian. You're going to have those your whole life, and to acknowledge them and to let them be things that move us closer to God and be places of growth. Now, this leads to our second question. How do we deal with these healthy doubts, honest doubts, faithfully? How do we deal with them faithfully? And um, how do our doubts get soothed? And I want to answer uh, with a couple things. Um, the first, first, the means of grace. Um, I'm going to say that those are. Um, I think uh, God gives us certain means of, of, of experiencing and knowing his grace and his goodness. So he gives us means of grace, but also more, found, more foundationally the promise of grace. So this, how do we deal with those, the means of, how do we deal with our doubts, the means of grace and the promise of grace? So first, uh, the means of grace. Uh, you know, historically, theologians have said that there's three, there's actually more means of grace than this, but 
but I pointed to specifically three means, things that God gives us as ways to know His grace and goodness, uh, that He's someone that can be trusted. And they're prayer, the Word, and the sacrament. Okay? Prayer, the Word, and the sacrament. I just want to talk a little bit about each of those and how they uh, they work with that. So the first is prayer. And you, have, you know, I've already been alluding to this, that Abraham is vocalizing his doubts to God, the questions he has to God. He, Abraham in this passage is in a conversation with God. They're uh, talking back and forth. And, you know, it's amazing. Uh, you know, our, our greatest resource is that God actually invites us to talk to him. What's amazing to me, I, again and again, I find in my life that it takes more faith than almost anything I've ever done in my life to actually take the things that are in my heart and put them on my mouth to say them to God and believe that He is actually listening and that He actually cares and that it actually makes any bit of a difference that I'm saying it to God. To me, that is a giant act of faith. And if you do that, you know, if you have major things that are unsettling to you about God, certain things that God is doing in your life, certain things about the Bible or about the church and the institution of the church or about other Christians, if you take those things and you say them honestly to God, what you're doing is you're letting your doubts live within this context of faith, right? Believe that God is sovereign and good. You would never say anything to God, speak to God, let Him know your heart unless you believe that God could do something and that He cares. That's the first act, and God invites you to come. He wants to know what is in your heart, He wants you to say it to Him. He wants you to take time. You actually have to have take time. This sounds like a small thing. It sounds like a trite thing. Let me just tell you this tremendous thing. And then it's in that place of talking to God that God will begin to heal your heart and begin to settle the things that you're going to tell them about. Um, it's by saying it to you. And, uh, you know, I just, I have to ask you, have you, the things that are doubting you, have you said them to God? Some of you would say, I, I said to God for years. And, uh, I've said them over and over and over again. And uh, well, you know what? There, again, there's some things we wait for, but there are some things, there are some things that take a long time. There are some things that right there on the spot, God does uh, assure us of his love and prayer. <coughs> so we've got to grab on things, and prayer is the first move of grace. The second thing is the word of God. Um, you can see in this passage that uh, Abraham, when he makes his complaint uh, to God, it says in verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Um, what Abraham's doubts needed was the word of God. There's nothing like the word of God to assure you of God's goodness that God can be trusted in his great words. Let me just tell you, you have them here in this Bible. I mean, this is why when we come to church, I'm just preaching right through books of the Bible. I'm giving it. We're reading through every word. We're not skipping over anything. It's because this is a means of grace that God gives us to know that we can trust him. And to know that he's good. You know, actually, um, yeah, I mentioned to you in the past that Genesis was written to the Exodus community. So the original pastoral intent of the book of Genesis was the, the Israel, after they had come out of Egypt, there were ten plagues, and they went through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh chased them, and they're in the desert, and they're waiting to go into the promised land, and Moses writes Genesis for them and gives it to them. So they're, you know, they're sitting on the lawn, the kids are there, and they're reading Genesis, and they're hearing about Abraham, their forefathers. And what they're about to do, God has just called them to go into the promised land where all these little city-states are living. And they're called to kill everyone in this land and take that land. 
I'll tell you that that little bit of biblical history, you know, just to give you a little window into my own doubts and things that have been unsettling that I've wrestled with, something I still wrestle with. That's probably the biggest one in the whole Bible that, that God told his people to go do that. I'm not saying that God is wrong. I'm not saying that it didn't happen. I'm not saying that God is evil or anything like that. I'm just telling you it's been unsettling. But even this week, you know, I'm studying this passage, right? And uh, getting ready for this sermon, and God used his word to work a, a little bit on those doubts that are unsettling for me. Look at verse 13. This is really amazing. Uh, know for certain, it's God speaking to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Exodus community, who's being written to who's Genesis. They're, they're sitting there listening on the lawn, nudging each other. That's us. He's talking about it. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring, this is Israel, will be sojourners in the land that's not theirs, that's Egypt, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. That's Egypt. And the plagues came on Egypt. And, there, and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That's where they are now. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And then it says this. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Amorites are the people that are living in that land who, who God's saying, I want you to go wipe all those people out. And you know, I never thought of this before, but what God is saying to Abraham is that it's going to take 400 years for that people to be wicked. They are already wicked. They're going to have to do it for 400 more years before they stir up God's wrath. I'll tell you, the Amorites, we know from this period that the Amorites were uh, an uncivilized um, you know, hacking, they, they created all kinds of unrest in the Middle East during this period. They were conquering and hacking uh, other city states, and um, they were brutal. Um, they, uh, they practiced uh, child sacrifice. They would take children and their children and burn them to their gods, offerings to their gods. There was all kinds of sexual abuse that was happening with children that was completely tolerated and considered normal. And this was a pure, wicked people through and through. And God is saying it's going to take them 400 years of doing that before my wrath is going to be stirred and my judgment is going to come upon them. 400 years of a people that wicked. That's how patient God is slow to anger. And it's going to take him that long. Even for this, the most wicked people you could imagine, it's going to take him 400 years. Um, see, you know what he's going to do? He's going to take his people, who, his beloved people, and he's going to put them in Egypt in a hardship and say, you know, I can't give you that land yet. Because it's, I, I'm not just going to house on these people. It takes 400 years of their wickedness before I'm going to have to house on them. And when his judgment comes, it's severe. But I see, look at how patient God is. And right here in this text, God is using his word to, you know, this didn't answer all my questions about the invasion of Canaan. I, I, it's still unsettling. It's probably unsettled for me my whole life. And yet, this word God is using to show me that I can trust him and that he's good. And I can still walk with him. And it's moved me closer to him. My doubts are moving me closer. And then, even having that doubt, open this text up to me. It shines light on this text. So, God uses his word, he uses it with Abraham, and he uses it with us to, to soothe our doubts, to deal with our doubts. The last thing is the sacraments. Um, 
the uh, the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You might say, where, where is it? Baptism and the Lord's Supper in this, uh, in this passage. Well, historically, uh, theologians said that what the sacrament is is a visible word. So, for example, you know, when I come up here and I break the bread, right? You're looking at me and I say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And it's kind of a picture of you of what God has done for you as he promises. It's poured out his blood. It's a visible word. And uh, what we have in this passage in verse 5, it says, and, uh, and the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And after God did that, it says, Abraham believed the Lord. He gave him a, he gave, uh, the Lord gave Abraham a visible picture of his promises, and that created faith in Abraham. It gave him faith. And you know, that's what this, that's what the supper does. When you come, God is building faith in you. Eat the bread, and you realize Christ is eating, you taste it, you smell it, and you, and you, you know, actually, I just heard this this week, a, a study that was done about, um, People who worship on a regular basis who come to place, they, they hear God's word, they sing, you know, you sing, you confess your sins, and uh, you come and you take communion. And they were doing uh, brain tests on people, so like what happens to their brains when they're doing this, and actually your uh, certain part of your brain start to kind of come together and grow and form together. Your actual brain physically changes while you're, I mean, as I'm talking to you, your brain fleshes are morphing. <laughs> I can see it happening. You have little lungs going. You can't see it. I can see it. Little, little cravings are, are moving around. So your your brain it has an actual physical effect on you. And when you come here, when this is a part of your life, uh, if you need this every week to come to come to the sacrament, to come hear God's word, to pray, to come before the Lord, it actually has a physical and spiritual effect on making you whole and putting your doubts in inside. And resting in it, assuring you that even though God's not going to tell you every reason He does everything, He's not going to be, He's going to continue to assure you that He's good and you can trust Him. But God gives us the means of grace um, for us to use it to assure us uh, to soothe our doubts and to deal with our doubts faithfully. Now, I've said a lot already, um, it's a lot to digest, but we're not even to the most profound part of this passage yet. There's something that's deeply moving in this passage. So this is my last little sub-point here, is that how do we deal with doubts? It's not just through the means of grace, but especially the promise of grace. God's promise of grace to us is what we need to deal with our doubts. And um, look with me at this passage. It's just, um, this passage continues to amaze me again and again and again. Look at, look at ver uh, in verse 8. Abraham actually asked God, how can I deal with my doubts, right? It says in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How can I be sure of your promises? How can I trust in it? How can I rest in it? And look, this is how the Lord responds to this. This is incredible. The Lord responds in verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Now this, this may sound very strange to you, a ritual, but they take, you know, these animals, and they cut them in half, and they, they basically make two rows of them, so that there's an aisle in the middle of these 
carpeted, right? She's blood and guts. In Abraham's culture, this was a common way of making a covenant or cutting a covenant. What happened was, you know, two people, if they're entering into a contract, they're saying, you know, I'm going to do certain things for you, you're going to do certain things for me. You know, maybe two kings who are making promises to one another. What they do is they do a ritual like this. They cut the animals, make two rows, and they would walk down between the two animals, reading off the things that they were promising to do. And the understanding was that if I don't do anything that I said I was going to do in the covenant, then may it be done to me as it was done to these animals. They walk down and they make their promises. Look at what happens in this passage. Verse 12 says, the sun, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Abram sitting over on the side having a nap. It says in verse 17, skip down to verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the people. Smoking fire pot and the torch in the Bible are both images of the presence of God. What's happening is while Abraham is sitting there sleeping on the side, God alone passes through the pieces and says, If the terms of this covenant, if the promises aren't met, let it be done to me as it was done unto me. Let me just tell you that Abraham, again and again, we're going to find out next week that Abraham uh, took his wife's maidservant and his men uh, tried to make a baby with her. Which is a terrible idea. And uh, Abraham is going to fail and fail and fail again. You are going to fail and fail and fail again. The covenant promises that you make that you owe to God. And what Abraham did is he slept on the side while God alone passed through the pieces. He says, and the curse falls upon you. And let me just tell you, when Jesus came, his body was born because we didn't hold up our end of the deal. And, and Abraham is saying, how can I know that I can trust you? God said, if the terms aren't met, I'm going to guarantee that all my promises are true to you. You can trust me. Jesus' body was born to you like he came. His real flesh and blood, shed blood, he was crushed. He was slaughtered for us. And let me just tell you, uh, you want to deal with your doubts. Abraham, God gives Abraham the gospel. Free grace in the gospel. And let me just tell you that uh, how is it possible that in verse 6 God says to Abraham that he is righteous? He's going to fail and fail and fail again. And it turns out that this is 400 years before the Ten of Commandments. Before the Ten of Commandments were given, before God's law was given, before God said, These are my expectations. Way before that, God gave to Abraham the promise of grace. If you want to know, is God someone you can trust? Is God someone that you can walk with even though you can't explain everything he does? Look to the gospel. Look to the promise of grace. And you'll find a God unlike anything you've ever met in the world. He's so good. So let me ask you, are you willing to trust that God? Is that a God that you can trust? Let's pray again. Our Lord, we thank you for this amazing passage. We are humbled by your grace. And that even though we will not know everything about you, and Lord, I know that there are many doubts, there are many people sitting here that are wrestling with serious, deep questions and doubts that have been unresolved. 
We pray that you would give us the strength to walk with you and that we would use these doubts to move closer to you and to know your grace makes us more deeply and we can grow up and change us and make us more like Jesus. We thank you for the promise of the gospel in this passage. And would we be a place that you make this into a church where people can walk through that process of doubt, of healthy doubt, believing that you are good and you want to bring them to you. And I also pray that many doubts will be uh, satisfied you would find out that our intellectual questions, that um, there are answers to them. And uh, that you would grow us and that we would have many reasons.